EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by the European Training Foundation, the EU agency supporting neighbourhood countries to reform the education, training and labour market systems. We're dealing with a pandemic and this is not seeking to punish any countries. We are the strongest supporters of global solidarity. And I think that it is extremely important that what we have now is an instrument that will just give us more scope. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Health Commissioner Stella Kyriakides defending plans announced this week that would let EU members block vaccine exports to countries they don't think are trading fairly when it comes to vaccines. They don't name the UK, but that seems to be very much who they have in mind. We'll explore how the plan is meant to work and whether it will ever be used in just a moment. And later in the podcast, we'll focus on the war in Syria, 10 years after it began. It's a war that sometimes seems forgotten in Europe. We'll look at what's being done on the humanitarian front, particularly to help children and what aid workers want from Europe. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. Uh, hi to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And it's hi also to our trade reporter, Jakob Hanka Vela. Hi, Jakob. Hello. So you may have noticed we are sounding a bit more downbeat uh, than usual, as you may have read. We lost our editor-in-chief, Stephen Brown, last week to a sudden heart attack. As you can imagine, the whole political newsroom, the whole company is devastated, heartbroken at the loss of someone who was at the very centre of our professional lives and in many ways our, our personal lives too, because he was, for all of us, a great friend as well as a great journalist and a great boss. We're going to pay proper tribute to him with a special edition of the podcast But before uh, we do that, I uh, just wanted to give each of you a chance to to say a few words and maybe give our listeners a sense of of Stephen, who I should say was also a devoted listener to this podcast. He often used to listen when he was driving in his Mini and uh, would always give us some feedback, very positive feedback, very positive person. Reem, if you could sum him up in a few words or, or an anecdote or something, what would you say? Yeah, the thing that really has always stuck with me since I met him two years ago, and I think will stay with me is, you know, his positivity, how warm he was, how quickly he established a very deep personal relationship, even though I wasn't in Brussels every day. And there's two things that I think will stay with me, which is one, how just he would always call me and say, do the journalism and do it right and never worry about any kind of retaliations or losing any kind of access because you should be speaking truth to power. And that was just gave me wings, really. And the second thing is that he was always very sensitive to whether I was being treated in an unfair way because I'm a woman. And that is very rare, especially for a man of his generation. And I always cherish that and Thankfully, though, he has infused that across the organisation. And I think we're very lucky in that regard at Politico. Very much so, Matt. You wrote uh, a very touching tribute to Stephen and appreciation, which uh, listeners can find on politico.eu. How would you sum him up? 
Well, thank you. Just to follow up on what Reem was saying, I would say in my case, at least, he was mainly worried if, if I was treating other people fairly. And as you say, he was an avid listener of the podcast. And uh, I remember in particular one time when he called me up to complain that I was always talking about the war. And, and he had this this kind of great sense of humor and a great tendency to try and make fun of me for various things. And I said, well, I don't remember talking about the war yesterday. And it, it turned out I'd been talking about the American Revolutionary War and uh, how we had freed ourselves from the British yoke in 1776. So he was always somebody you could rely on for a bit of fun. And I think that's, you know, one of the main things I will remember him for. Yeah, absolutely. And Jacob, uh, you and I were talking the other day, and you had uh, quite a nice story from your early days at Politico. I think I was telling you about when I joined Politico six years ago, and I was uh, an intern with the Axel Springer program. I had been tasked with something really boring. I was filling out tables. And Stephen came along and asked me who I was and what I was doing. and was really enthusiastic. And he, he saw that I wasn't very amused with the task that I had been given, filling out uh, Excel tables. And he said, yeah, you should, you, should, you should be outside, a real journalist to be outside. And where do you really want to go? I told him about some press conference at NATO. He said, go there, write up a story and send it to me and I will edit it. And he did. Um, he told me it was great. He changed everything, I think. But he said, it's a, it's a great story, much better than many stories that I've read from your colleagues and very good. And that was uh, all he said, but um, it, it was extremely encouraging. And I think it's um, for the months of my internship that I had to do dollar things afterwards that encouraged me. And for years, actually, it's encouraged me to stay a journalist. Yeah, he was hugely encouraging. As I say, we'll try to do him proud with a proper tribute, I would just say. Also, he was my direct boss from the day I joined Politico, and he gave me an extraordinary amount of latitude and freedom, even though the decisions that uh, I was making every day would have had a big impact on his reputation if I'd got them wrong. And he was a great boss. He was undoubtedly the boss, but yet also a friend. And I think that's the thing that, that strikes me a lot, is that he did... He could do two things well when you were only meant to be able to do one of them. Like he was a great journalist and also a great boss. He was hands-on, but also light touch. He was the, our deputy boss before and then stepped up to become the boss. And sometimes that's a hard transition. And he did that flawlessly. But we'll leave it there for now. The news, unfortunately, doesn't stop for anyone. But we will, as I say, pay proper tribute in the days ahead. So... Let's turn to the news, which is something, uh, you know, he reveled in the news and this has been a busy week and he loved weeks like this. So uh, let us turn to the news and it's once again vaccines that have been uh, dominating the headlines in recent days. We're talking just before uh, European Council Summit, which is taking place by video conference because of the virus, because there is a third wave in many EU countries and lockdowns are being imposed again and uh, vaccines are top of the agenda and that's partly why we have you here, Jakob, because the European Commission has come out talking tough again on vaccines. Can you give us the, the very brief summary of what it is that they are proposing to do? Basically, what, what we can say, what the Commission has decided today is it's toughening its export control scheme a lot. It's now, uh, at least on paper, able to block vaccine exports to any country that has a higher vaccination rate than the EU. 
even though commissioners were rolled out immediately to tell us that's not at all what they have in mind and that this tool will still be mainly used for transparency. But it's clear that it's a, it's a threat. It's a threat to the United Kingdom, very clearly, because it has a much higher vaccination rate. And it's also a threat to vaccine makers. Under the previous scheme, you could block exports, but only if that shipment was deemed to threaten what the commission calls APAS, the advanced purchase agreements, the contracts and, and with their delivery times. And the only company, according to the commission, that's really behind on their APAS is AstraZeneca. So de facto, the previous scheme only targeted AstraZeneca. The new one, since it's much broader, it just says you can block to any country that has a higher vaccination rate than the EU, could be used to block Pfizer BioNTech vaccines or Johnson Johnson vaccines going to the UK, for example. Mm. Jakob, but you think there's a there's a bit of a hole in this, right? There's a bit of a hole in terms of what happens to those vaccines if they're blocked, right? Exactly. So the the real question that we're all trying to figure out today in the trade team and David Hurstenson and other reporters is what happens if the commission blocks a Pfizer shipment to the UK? And what the commission said, the trade commissioner Dombrovskis said is that we can't requisition those vaccines. We can block them, but then they stay the property of the vaccine maker. So it's, it doesn't directly solve what the commission wants to solve. It wants more vaccines for EU citizens. This isn't directly going to do that. But talking to officials on background, they said we can pressure vaccine makers to basically get them to deliver more and more quickly is their hope. Mm, okay, great. That's a really good uh, summary of it. And it will be a subject for discussion. So obviously, we don't know yet. This is a commission proposal. Uh, there seem to be a range of views among uh, member countries. But Jacob, we're going to let you go because I think you have a trade newsletter to write for our pro subscribers. Uh, so we'll let you go. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. See you next time. So, Reem, uh, has there been much reaction in France? Can we get a sense of whether the, the French government is on board with this idea? Well, so we had already heard from Macron last week when he said that he does support uh, Ursula von der Leyen's proposal of reciprocity. But now what we did hear today from Elysee officials, so today is Wednesday, the day before the European Council summit is taking place, is that they are looking to see, to look at the details of the proposal and what is in the documents. So one thing that came to our attention as uh, political colleagues got the draft documents ahead of time is that there was no exemption, for example, for the poorer countries that are on what is called a COVAX list. And when I asked the Elysee officials about this, they said that they needed to look at the details, but that indeed, there had been some questions raised about whether some of the exports of vaccines to COVAX, so poorer countries, had actually not been diverted away to richer countries. And so what they're saying is that this COVAX mechanism that is supposed to be all about solidarity with poorer countries was being taken advantage of by some rich countries, they did not name which ones, to get their hands on vaccine doses that are produced in the EU. So we're going to see whether that is clarified in the next few days. 
Right, and the, this idea of reciprocity, there were at least two different pronunciations of it that I heard or versions of it the other day, but the idea being that if another country, for example, the UK, is not exporting what you think it should be exporting, then you block exports in the other direction. Matt, I think maybe we'll switch it. We'll stay with vaccines or, or, or with the coronavirus anyway. And the German political scene, the news there, I mean, there's obviously still a lot of frustration about uh, the vaccine rollout, but there's also a lot of anger around corruption associated with uh, the virus. you want to fill us in on where things stand there? Yeah, over the past month, basically, there have been just a string of cases involving prominent and not so prominent German officials and politicians who've been accused of benefiting from mask deals. And as people will remember, there was a real shortage across Europe last spring of masks. And the German government, uh, in particular, the health ministry, put out a call for mask suppliers saying they were in the market and um, looking for them. And it, it turns out they got offers from some very surprising places, and including a German magazine publisher, which is surprising in itself. Uh, more surprising is, is that the magazine publisher in question, the Buda Verlag, ended up selling the German government over 500,000 masks. That in itself might have only been a, a small footnote in this whole story if it weren't for the fact that the husband of the German health minister works for this publisher and is their head lobbyist. Now, he says he knew nothing about this deal, or the company says he knew nothing about it, that it was set up between Jens Spahn, the German health minister, and the company's CEO. And yet it has sort of represented this overall feeling in Germany, I think, that there is a lot of sort of funny business going on in the background involving the government's response to the pandemic more generally. And there's just a lot of anger in Germany about the slowness of rolling out the vaccines. And, and it really has been a bit of a disaster. Yeah, and that, and that one rolls on. We also had the unusual uh, sight today of Angela Merkel apologising in the Bundestag over uh, what seems to have been a, a bit of a kind of mess up in terms of trying to order a kind of Easter lockdown, which went, went badly wrong. Dieser Fehler ist einzig und allein mein Fehler. Denn am Ende How serious do you think that is? How unusual is that for her to be basically asking, literally asking for forgiveness from the German people? Well, it's pretty unusual. It's funny, though, because I think that people who generally like her thought it was a good thing and said, you know, this will be part of her legacy, that she has the courage to stand up and ask for forgiveness. But I think you could also look at it in a sense that this is a real panic button for her, because this was a decision that was made in the middle of the night a couple of days ago in negotiations with the heads of the German regions, where they were trying to come up with a common plan about how to go forward here with a lockdown policy. And this was one aspect of it. It was part of a compromise. And then a couple of days later to say, well, we're actually not going to do that because people were so angry about it. One of the reasons they were angry was that the bureaucracy didn't know what to do. And it's a very, for people who know Germany, it was a very sort of German problem. They didn't know if they should classify some of these days off over Easter as federal holidays or as sort of days of rest, like Sunday, which creates all kinds of legal issues for people. So uh, it was almost sort of humorous in a way. But in the sort of larger context of everything else, there it does feel like we're a bit at the kind of 
end of days here of the miracle era. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a very smooth ride on her way out. Mm. Reem, I, I saw there was some French uh, reaction to this uh, mea culpa, this kind of humility from, from Merkel, and some talk about whether that would uh, happen among the, among the French political elite. What do you think? Yeah, the short answer is uh, fat chance, probably. We've literally never heard, for example, Emmanuel Macron say that he's made a mistake. Like that word does not come out of his mouth. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. Matt and Reem, thanks very much. Uh, we're going to let Matt go. Cheers, Matt. Bye-bye. And uh, keep Reem for just a couple more minutes uh, to introduce our interview. And Reem, this is a bit of a change of topic again, but one that we thought was worth bringing to our listeners because there's actually an important anniversary right around now. And uh, maybe you can explain what that is and who we're going to talk to about it. Yes. Yeah, so next week, the EU is holding a conference on Syria. And as our listeners might know, we are now in the 10th year of the Syrian conflict, which started as a sort of demonstrations uh, in 2011 for more democracy in, in Syria and then devolved into a civil war and really a regional war with uh, Iran, Russia, the US, uh, the EU, you know, European countries also involved, and as well as obviously the Islamic State Daesh. And so as we mark this uh, this awful anniversary, really, we thought it would be a good idea to speak to the Save the Children Syria country director, uh, Sonia Kush, about uh, the current situation, what the needs are for the millions of displaced children and women, uh, whether in camps, refugee camps in Syria or uh, across the border in neighboring countries, and how the EU has been helping and what more needs to be done. That's coming up in just a moment. A message from the European Training Foundation. The European Training Foundation works with policymakers and practitioners to support reform, promote evidence-based approaches, document change, provide analysis, and stimulate debate to anticipate new skills needs. Its activities are devised and delivered in the context of EU policies. The ETF's work helps to strengthen relations between the EU and neighbourhood countries, and it contributes to improving the relevance and effectiveness of EU technical and financial assistance in those countries. Well, we are joined now by Sonia Kush, who is the Syria Country Director for Save the Children. Hi, Sonia. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, joining us. So, of course, we are marking the 10-year anniversary of this conflict that started as a revolution and then devolved into... A civil war, a regional war, maybe even more. Can we maybe start by you giving us a snapshot of where things stand today in Syria from your perspective? Sure. Well, it's hard to believe that we've already hit the 10-year mark of the conflict. And so what we're seeing is a whole generation of children that have known nothing but conflict. And it's tragic that 10 years in, we're still at the level of trying to meet the basic humanitarian needs of about 12 million Syrians. You still have families, millions of families that are still living in tents and have no hope of going back to where they're from. And so it's, it's a pretty grim milestone to mark at this point. And so what are their living conditions? When we're talking about these children, you say it's a generation that was born and raised during this conflict. Concretely, how do they live? What are their needs today? 
Well, we, for example, work in a lot of camps in northwest and northeast Syria, one of the most famous of which is Al-Hol. And I can just give you an example of what it's like to be a child in Al-Hol. You know, imagine having fled living under ISIS control where a child witnessed regular beheadings and was exposed to so much violence. Then you end up in a camp where healthcare is not adequate. There's so many incidences of insecurity. There are regularly murders happening in the camp. So what we're seeing now is children in general really don't feel safe. They have this constant sense of anxiety and stress. How does that manifest, that anxiety? Sure. So we see a lot of children that still have uh, nightmares. You know, when they hear or see a plane overhead, they just run, you know, they scatter for cover. When they hear loud noises like a dog barking or even a vehicle starting, again, they get really nervous. You see a lot of children that are uh, afraid of men because they're so used to seeing men holding weapons. So you see children that have never really been able to calm down and process everything that they have been exposed to. And so that for us is a concern because we know medically speaking, that will stay with them for years to come unless it's really treated now, which is really hard to do in Syria. And so I was going to ask, what are the tools that you have at your disposal? I mean, I've been to that camp in northeast Syria, Al-Hol, and the way I remember it, this was about two years ago. Uh, you know, there were tents. It's not like they live in buildings. In the winter, it's pretty rough because it's very cold. It rains. It's not like they have schools they can go to. I mean, they have makeshift schools, but it's all kind of makeshift and ad hoc. And so what real tools do you have at your disposal to help with that very deep-seated trauma? It's not easy, but we actually have found that one of the best ways to support children is to get them into a classroom. So we at Save the Children and other organizations have invested a lot in trying to increase the number of schools that are available. And in talking to Syrian children, the one priority they always ask us for is the ability to go to school because they know that they won't have a chance at a productive life or a future unless they get an education. And they're so smart about that. When we ask them what they need, the first thing they say is, can we go to school? I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. And we found that by being in school, children begin to calm down in a way because they are getting that sense of normalcy and routine. You know, it's never enough. A lot of these children need a clinical support. We can't provide that, but we're doing whatever we can under these difficult circumstances to help them cope with some of the trauma they're facing. And what kind of support do you get from the international community? Do you do you get financial support from the EU, for example, or from European countries? We work with a lot of European countries, and the EU has been fantastic in recognizing the importance of education in emergencies. So they're one of our major donors, actually, for our work in Al-Hol. That's, you know, quite commendable because a lot of donors and countries don't think education is life-saving. But for us, it absolutely is. But there's another side to Al-Hol, which is that it's where a lot of the European women and children who went over to Syria and Iraq and sort of got married to ISIS fighters exist today and where they're being kept and where European countries sort of don't want to take them back. Are these populations that you also deal with and handle? Yeah, Save the Children has been working with foreign women and children that fled ISIS control or left ISIS areas since 
about 2017. And, you know, ISIS really did a number on them in terms of um, really hindering their, their brain development and their ability to engage in independent and critical thinking. Everything was very much of an indoctrination. So in the camps, when we run schools for these children, it's a slow process, but we're also able to help them sort of recover from the traumas that they were exposed to. But having said that, and this is something I would really stress to all European uh, nationals and governments, this is not a place for a child to grow up and really recover from having lived under ISIS. They need to be repatriated back to their countries of origin so they can get the really critical support they need and have a chance to be productive citizens and not fall into a vicious cycle of being recruited by another armed group or heading down the wrong path. That can only happen if they're taken home. So we're urgently and always calling for the repatriation. And we're so glad to see that on March 11, the European Parliament also issued a resolution calling for all member states to repatriate their citizens, because that is the only long-term solution for this group. But we're seeing a lot of resistance to that kind of repatriation from countries like France, for example. France only repatriates on a case-by-case basis, only repatriates the children, not necessarily the mothers. Belgium has taken a different approach. Do you have more to say to us about how these, I mean, are you part of these conversations with, for example, a country like France We do a lot of engagement with countries of origin to advocate for them to not only take children or orphans back, but also take the mothers. And I understand it's a difficult situation because a lot of times governments feel like they won't be able to adequately try the women because of judicial processes back at home. Our point of view is that if you condemn the mothers to stay in Northeast Syria, and a lot of them won't let their children go home ahead of them, you're really condemning those children to a life of violence and neglect. And so I have full faith in the judicial systems, whether it's France or Germany or other countries, to find a way to make sure that the judicial process is sound and try these women for crimes they may have committed. Us asking for repatriation is not saying that they're innocent. It's saying get them out of Syria and then find a way to address them on a case-by-case basis when they're back home. But don't condemn the children to a life of misery. And so what is it that you're not getting from the international community that you really do need to get at this stage? Well, obviously, uh, an end to the conflict through a political process would be wonderful. That seems to be very far off. It does. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's really what's going to solve the issue here. We haven't been able to see Syria as a safe place for families to return to. It's certainly not. Although concerningly, some governments are declaring parts of Syria, such as the areas around Damascus, safe so that they're actually encouraging Syrians to return. We are completely opposed to that at this point. Can you just go into detail as to why determining that these areas are safe is actually a fallacy and why these areas are not safe for return for those who have left? Sure. Well, there's some misconception that because bombs are not falling on Damascus or that there's not active conflict right now in Damascus, that it's safe. And so Syrian refugees in Europe should go home. But it doesn't take into consideration what might happen to them when they go back to Syria. They may be detained. They may be put in jail. They may disappear. We may never even know what happens to them. And then you're asking people to return to Syria with a decimated healthcare system in the middle of a global pandemic. 
And so you're asking people to go back to a country that is still on the brink and, you know, making proclamations that it's safe when we know on so many levels from just a well-being and a security system that that's just not the case. And so in addition to saying to these European countries that are trying to designate the areas around Damascus as safe for return, what else do you need the EU to be doing? The EU countries are holding a conference on Syria in the next few days. What is it that you would like to come out concretely from that kind of conference that goes beyond deploring the situation and hoping for peace? Well, first of all, I hope the EU member states have a chance to actually hear from Syrians and from Syrian children as to what they want. It's one thing for us to say that children want an education. It's so much more interesting to hear it directly from a Syrian teenager. We would also just say, you know, 10 years in, we're still at the level of having to provide basic humanitarian assistance like food baskets, which is hard to imagine. So I understand that, you know, budgets are a challenge this year all around the world and Syria is no exception, but don't sort of think that the corner has turned in Syria and it needs less than it did last year. That's absolutely not the case. In fact, our information is that the numbers of people in need just continue to go up. And so continue to invest, but also look at areas that support you know, things like education and mental health, because these often get sort of neglected in terms of, let's say, healthcare or water. And we we think all are important. You don't want a whole generation of Syrian children growing up, you know, traumatized. So you want to catch those sort of mental issues early and address them while you can so that you can have healthy and productive Syrians in the future. Thank you very much, Sonia Kush, for taking the time to talk us through the current situation 10 years in. You're welcome. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. As I mentioned at the beginning, we hope you'll take some time in the coming days to listen to a forthcoming special edition of the podcast, commemorating Politico's Stephen Brown. So please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that episode and others to come. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.